Welcome to Ask a Lawyer with me, Steve Sleeper. Our guest today is DUI defense attorney Joshua Price with Defending Rights Law Center in San Diego. Attorney Price has the knowledge and experience to solve charges related to alcohol, drugs, DMV, or driving. I began the interview by asking Josh about himself and his firm. I started my practice in 2009, and I was fortunate enough after doing general criminal defense all throughout law school and post-bar through the alternate public defender's office and the public defender's office. I did all types of um, criminal law. And then once I graduated and got my license, I was fortunate enough to um, take over a DUI firm and took over a DUI firm. I I had done a little bit of DUI when I was doing general criminal stuff, but had no idea how much knowledge it required to, to, um, competently do DUI defense. Um, A lot of attorneys are kind of a jack of all trade. They do all criminal defense and then they're a master of none. And I decided to try to be a master of DUI law, which is still, you know, about 14 years later, still a work in progress. I mean, I'm still constantly learning. Things are constantly evolving. There's, there's a lot of science involved in DUI defense um, and that's, that's pretty much it. I've, I've been fortunate to carve out a niche in this area and that's what I've been doing since 2009. What should a person expect from a, a good DUI defense lawyer besides what you already touched on? A thorough review of all the evidence, knowing what to collect. Um, a lot of attorneys, unfortunately, look at the BAC and they go, oh, you're a point one six. You're screwed. I'm just going to go in and plead you guilty. Here, sign the plea paperwork. They don't request the underlying data on, on let's say, the blood test results. They don't inquire as to a client's medical condition, which may affect a blood or a breath test. All right. The testing methods that the crime lab uses. All right. And so every case, you have to explore all that stuff because, you know, maybe half the time you don't find anything. Well, half the time or even a quarter of the time, if you find something, and and this is what I see from time to time, it doesn't happen in every case, but this is an example of what can happen. Let's say a blood test. I have a case right now, the guy is alleged to be, I think he's a 0.15. That's a pretty high blood alcohol level. It's about double the legal limit. In California, that becomes a penalty enhancement if you're a 0.15 or greater. The legislature says, hey, that's an additional enhancement, more punishment for the higher BAC. But, you know, he's like, I don't think I was that high. You know, I only drank this much. And you run through the calculations. You go, well, you should have been under a 0.08. And look, some people lie to me because they think I'm going to fight harder. And I try to make it clear, look, do not lie to me. Even if you're a legit 0.15, but I find issues, I'm still going to fight for you. I'm still right. going to fight I would any other case. But in any case, this guy is alleged to be a one five, and I found some issues in the in the underlying data for um, the blood test. Okay, and some of the some of the issues that can occur, for example, in a in a blood test, is, and what happened in his case is, you know, they run about a hundred samples in the same run. Okay, so they might take Steve's blood, Josh's blood. 
um, and a hundred other people's blood and they put it, you, it'd, be, it'd be like 50 other people's blood because they do two vials for Steve, two vials for Josh, and then they relabel it. The crime lab does. They put it in their gas chromatograph or however they're testing the blood. So it's basically a tray of hundred different blood samples. Okay. Then they put it in the machine. They input the data. So vial 31 and 32 is Steve's. 32 and 34 is Josh's. Okay. So there's, there's errors that can occur with these steps, right? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, what happened in, in this guy's case is one of the calibrators that they ran throughout these hundred samples was out of, it was out of calibration. Okay. So what the crime lab did is they said, okay, everyone's sample after that calibration that was out, we're going to redo, which okay. my client sample didn't fall in. And so that can, that's a problem and calls into question. Okay. So that calibrator was not, it wasn't properly calibrated. Why wouldn't you redo all hundred? Why would you only redo 30? Mm. Okay, it doesn't make sense from common sense standpoint or scientific standpoint, but the bottom line is this, they're busy. Okay. And so the crime lab people will come in and say, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, we have confidence in Price's client sample. We didn't in the other 30. Well, that, that doesn't really make any sense. Okay. And so those are things that start to call into doubt, which, you know, doesn't, doesn't allow the prosecutor to prove their case beyond all reasonable doubt, because that gives us reason to doubt the truth of that BAC level. Mm-hmm. You know, cops, they're humans like us, you know, they make mistakes. How how big a factor can that play into getting a case dismissed? It depends on the gravity of the mistake. So small mistakes, it's not really going to, you know, make or break the case. They spell my client's name wrong. That's not really going to do much. Okay. But little mistakes add up. If there's a bunch that can be big. And most of the the mistakes are made in breath testing because um, administering a breath test is really the only scientific collection of evidence that cops in the field are allowed to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're not taking the blood. They're not analyzing the blood, but they're allowed to administer a breath test, which is somebody's breath alcohol level. And a number comes up on the machine, which carries just as much weight as a blood test. Okay. But there's a lot more mistakes that can happen on a breath case. Okay. Breath is indirect measurement of blood. Most states, because most breath testing device manufacturers require at least a 15 to 20 minute deprivation period prior to administering that test, the breath test, the evidential Mm -hmm. breath test. Okay. So after somebody's arrested, they choose blood or breath. If they choose breath, the officer is required. You know, in California, we have Department of um, Health code and regulations that require at least a 15 minute observation period. That's to make sure somebody's not drinking, eating, smoking, um, vomiting, regurgitating, burping, things like that, because things in the mouth can falsely elevate a breath alcohol level. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, most of these machines require at least a liter and a half of air being blown into the machine to get a reading to get a numerical score, but it's only measuring a cubic centimeter approximately. 
right. of that air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. a lot of air going in and it's pulling out a random sample of that air that's supposed to be end expired breath because that's the air deepest within our lungs that mixes where the alveolar sacs are that mix with the the blood and the breath okay where the exchange happens but long story short if the officer doesn't observe somebody for 15 minutes again it calls into question the validity of those breath results okay or if you have a case where somebody you know has something in their mouth and the officer says oh you have something in your mouth spit it out and then and then they don't wait 15 minutes they administer the test okay, okay. that results not not going to be valid the problem in california because you know back in the early 80s we voted um for prop 8 which is truth and evidence which california says you know if officers screw up evidence doesn't get tossed out like a breath alcohol um result it has to be a fourth amendment violation a federal a constitutional violation that's why we have a right to a jury trial in california 12 jurors on a misdemeanor dui and so it's battle of the experts our expert says look the the cops screwed up this is what it means it means that that breath alcohol level is not reliable and then there the state expert will say you know that it's probably reliable but that's reasonable doubt okay so that mistake you hope that the jury comes back not guilty another big mistake is if they pull you over and there's no reasonable suspicion okay reasonable suspicion is you know they have to believe that uh, they have to be able to point to specific articulable facts um, that would lead the officer to believe that criminal activity is afoot, which is typically a vehicle code violation of some sort, tinted windows, weaving in and out of the lane, speeding, right? They can stop you for that. But if, you know, let's say your right side tires touch the lane line once and you're back within the lane and they stop you for that, arguably that is not a good stop. That would be a Fourth Amendment violation. I would file a motion to suppress argue to a judge, hey, judge, that is not a lawful stop. You cannot stop somebody in this state, this country, um, for such a minor deviation. Didn't even go outside the lane. And the judge would probably agree. In fact, I've won cases based on that that kind of driving. Now, if they cross over the lane line, back within the lane, that's probably going to be enough to stop them. I'm curious, in California, one thing I didn't hear you talk about was the walk and turn and the eye test. Uh, is that part of the roadside test? Yeah, so there's they're part of standardized field sobriety testing, um, which was developed by National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, um, I believe in the 70s. And <clears throat> they developed three tests, the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, where an officer is you know, using the tip of their pen or their finger, holding it about, you know, 14 inches away from your face. And then they're kind of moving it side to side and they're looking for involuntary jerking of the eyes, which is nystagmus. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so they're supposed to do that a certain number of times over a certain um, time period. All right. And most officers are not doing this test correctly. Okay. Okay. Same with the same with the walk and turn, another standardized field sobriety test, and the one leg stand test. Okay, so for each of these tests, the officers are trained to look for a certain number of clues or cues, and if somebody exhibits that, that that basically aids in their probable cause determination. Okay, and officers are trained that it correlates to an alcohol level, which is BS, but <laughs> that's how they're trained. So 
Um, I, I just literally right before this podcast, I have a client who was arrested for a second offense DUI and he refused a chemical test, which is a two year license revocation, no restricted license for two years because it's a second offense. Okay. So I got the video. I looked at the video, you know, officer does the eye test. And then my client says, I don't want to do any more tests. The officer says, you don't have to do any more tests, but arrests him. Well, I requested his blood alcohol level because the DA didn't file charges, but the DMV can still take his license for two years. Okay. So, you know, part of these refusal hearings, I want the BAC because today I just found out his his blood alcohol level came back a 0.03. Okay. Which is complete BS. All right. And, and that just shows you that if you have any amount of alcohol in your system, you're probably going to be arrested. If you don't do the portable breathalyzer, which is voluntary prior to being arrested. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to use that blood alcohol level to fight the DMV and say, Hey, look, there's a presumption in California. If you're under an O5, you're not under the influence of alcohol. Okay. So the arrest was unlawful and try to win his license back that way. The blood test, is that done down to the station then after the arrest is made? Yep. In that case, they had to get a warrant because he refused. So they applied for a warrant, got a warrant, and then a phlebotomist comes, okay, which is typically contracted out um, by law enforcement agencies in California. So, you know, the, the officer will call for a phlebotomist. They're coming from their house. They're in bed, asleep, whatever, you know, come draw this guy's blood, throw on some clothes, drive down there, take the blood, um, which is what they did in this case. Let's say... I've been pulled over. Uh, cop has probable cause to arrest me. What happens after after I'm arrested? I'm cuffs are put on me. I'm put in a squad car. What happens after that? So, if you're arrested for suspicion of DUI, then in, at least in California, you're, you're in most states, you're required to submit to either a breath or a blood test after you're arrested. Okay. If you refuse then typically the officer will be required to read an admonition advising you of the consequences of refusing. Okay. And so in California, you can, you can incur criminal penalties for refusing a breath test, not for refusing a blood test because a blood test, you have a constitutional right to refuse. Okay. Mm -hmm. If they get a warrant, then they have to use, you know, they can use reasonable force, (laughs) reasonable force to get your blood. All right. So if they suspect drugs or something like that, maybe you blow into a breath machine, they say, hey, it came up zeros, you look impaired, we're going to take your blood, okay? And they either consent, if they don't consent, they have to get a warrant. What about marijuana? Um, how uh, how difficult is uh, that to prove? Very difficult, unless there's a video, you know, with these drug cases, Steve, the, the number the drug level on board doesn't really matter. There's no per se. Well, some states do have a per se limit. I don't know if Nebraska does, but I think like Nevada, maybe Washington, maybe Colorado, they have um, these per se limits. Okay. And, you know, like with alcohol, it's a 0.05. I'm sorry, a 0.08. Right. At some point, I think it's going to go to 0.05. You know, most states do not have a per se limit with marijuana or any other drugs, right? So 
the issue becomes, um, what does your client look like on video? Do they look intoxicated or do they not? And if Mm -hmm. they don't look intoxicated, they're acting completely normal, but you have, you know, 50 nanograms of Delta nine THC, which is the active metabolite in marijuana. And then you have 11 hydroxy, which is another active metabolite. Those two metabolites could impair you for purposes of driving. All right. And then you have an inactive metabolite carboxy that might stay in your system for 30 days or more. Okay. Mm -hmm. Even the active metabolites can stay in your system for up to a week. All right. And so that's, especially with marijuana, the level, the level does not mean that you're impaired. Okay. It's your behavior, you know, so you got to look at everything. You got to look at the driving. How's your client acting? Is he talking normal, walking normal, answering questions normal? then that's a good case, right? If they're so stoned, they can't talk and they're, you know, lethargic and all of that. Like we would expect somebody who's super stoned, like from Cheech and Chong or something. Okay. They probably shouldn't be driving. And, you know, even if they're a low level THC, the video dooms them. Right. Right. Okay. And I'm sure that's probably then the same with prescription meds like opiates uh, or is it? Yeah. 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 Okay. And okay. It, with prescription drugs, Steve, you have what we call these therapeutic ranges. So, you know, there's certain publications that will say, you know, Xanax, for example, if you're between these levels, that's where we would expect the therapeutic range to be, which doesn't really matter because with drugs, just like alcohol, but more so with drugs, we have tolerance, right? If you've been taking Xanax for 10 years, it probably doesn't really affect you. Okay. If you take Xanax for the first time, you're probably blottoed, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. depending on how much you take. Right. So, but yeah, again, it comes back to the video. I I've had, I had these Xanax case, a couple of Xanax cases where they were very low levels within therapeutic range. One was below therapeutic range. I go, this is a great case, but I got the video. My client looked so intoxicated that it changed my opinion. <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, versus like alcohol, the O3, I don't care how my client looks. That that's a BS case. All right. right and O3 right. is not going to impair anybody, okay, for purposes of driving. But a one three will. And we know that because alcohol has been studied more than any other drug. So what about an old guy like me? I'm over 60. <laughs> um, I've got bad knees from running cross country. Um, I got the knees of a 90 year old. Um, can they, what can they, can, can they test me? I, I suppose a breath breath test, but what about the walk and turn and things like that? Um, well, the walk and turn and one leg stand, I believe it, it's, if you're 65 or older or 50 pounds or more overweight, take that with a grain of salt. Cause I don't have my material in front of me, but if yeah, I believe those two categories, um, you are not a good candidate for those two tests. Okay, right, right. Uh, you know, unfortunately, with with age, we don't get more nimble. Yeah, yeah. Tell <laughs> um, me about it. Yeah. So you just you just shouldn't be given those tests. Okay, you could do the HGN, and look at the end of the day, someone could fail the HGN, they could fail the walk and turn, fail the one leg stand, or they could pass it with flying colors. Okay. You could, you could fail it and be zero BAC or drugs on board. You could pass them and be an 08. 
Okay. So that's why officers use, at least in California, it's called a preliminary alcohol screening device test. That's kind of their cheat stick. No matter how well or or bad you do on field sobriety tests, they're going to go off that number if you choose to blow into it because that's a voluntary test. And officers are required to tell you it's a voluntary test. You do not have to take this, okay? Because in California, it's another set of numbers that a prosecutor can use against you. So I tell my clients, friends, and family, if you think you're close, you've had a couple of drinks, do not take that test. Number one, it can way overstate your your true alcohol level. Um, And B, it's another set of numbers that can be used against you. But if you've had, I mean, if, you know, if you're like for you, Steve, or me, if you had two Bud Lights, I would say blow into it. Um, Right. If you stopped drinking an hour ago. Okay. But, you know, then that number comes up, like in this case, if my client had blown a 0.03 on scene, he would have never been arrested. But instead, he utilized his right to decline the field sobriety tests. He's arrested. He refuses a blood or breath. They take his blood. Turns out he's an 03. I mean, he he didn't know what his BAC was, but now he has to pay me to fight his case. Right, right. Do you see a lot of plea bargains in the system? Most, most people accused of crimes take plea bargains. I mean, right. that's just the bottom line. Okay. It, you know, and it's the path of least resistance for most people. And, you know, if you get a good deal or, you know, a, some cases I can get the DUI dismissed and then they do, um, you know, maybe a, a reckless driving or something like that. Right. They're happy with it. You know, th- they move on with their life um, or they're just dead to rights. And it's just trying to negotiate down the punishment cdls i suppose that's a whole different ball game eh? the what cdls commercial driver's oh, license oh yeah. yeah yeah they they can lose their way of making a living yeah they're looking at a one-year loss of their commercial license with a dui and on a second offense lifetime ban right right talk about those i guess for lack of a better way of asking oh. You know, clients that have more on the line, there's, you know, is higher stakes and you got to, you got to navigate, you know, those are the clients that are more inclined to go to a jury trial. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. The the more people have to lose, the more they're willing to fight. And unfortunately, the more you want to fight, the more money it costs because you need expert witnesses and expert witnesses aren't cheap. So, you know, with a commercial license, you have to win the DMV hearing. Okay, which is a completely separate process in California. It's an administrative hearing. If you win the DMV hearing and you get the DUI dismissed, so you plea them down to like alcohol related reckless driving or reckless driving, that will save a commercial license. And so oftentimes you're looking for that sort of plea bargain. If you can't get it, then you're talking about going to trial. Our guest today on Ask a Lawyer with Steve Sleeper is DUI defense attorney Joshua Price with Defending Rights Law Center in San Diego. His phone number is 858-289-2624, and his website is defendingrights.com.